I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John. That is toward the end of the Bible near Revelation. There's 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, then Jude, then Revelation. So it's right there at the end. But we're going to study the first four verses uh, of that. While you're turning there, I trust you had a great Christmas. And it's good to see each of you and uh, those of you joining by way of live stream as well. Hope you had plenty of time with your families and plenty to eat and uh, plenty to celebrate as well. But we're going to be reading this, these first four verses. This is First John. We'll pray and then we'll consider these verses for our portion this morning. John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this last Sunday of the year, the last Sunday of December. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us through your eternal word. We thank you for the many blessings you've heaped on us. And to think back on a year that was so different than we had expected. And with the prospect of a new year ahead. Lord, we want to invoke your holy name on all of it. To invite you here purposefully, not to assume or take for granted that you would be here in what we call your house, but that you would inhabit your people's praises and that our attitude and our heart of worship would be something that would invite you here as fallen and sinful as we are and so undeserving of your grace. Lord, take this service as our offering to you and bless this, our, our few minutes of study. Teach us something. Make us better as a result. And may we encourage one another in your name. We ask all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this is a strange time of year usually. There's such a lead up to Christmas. And then as soon as it's over, I don't want to say it's soon forgotten, but there's so much on the calendar and things to clean up and uh, trash cans to empty that are full of wrapping paper. And uh, even worse than that, I have found that leftovers in the fridge seem to linger long after the trash cans with the wrapping paper are long hauled away. We just don't want to waste food, do we? But we make too much and we pile it all in there and we try to, hey, have some of this and there's only two types of people in the world. Those who like leftovers and those who don't. But with all that behind us and the prospect of a new year ahead, we, we get a new year later this week. 
I thought for the last Sunday in December, before we begin all the things for the new year, let's spend one more considering the themes of Christmas. And uh, this passage here um, might not immediately strike us as a Christmas passage because it's not describing the details of Christ's birth. And that's something if you're part of a more liturgical church, uh, lots of church uh, passages are read having to do with Christmas that, that aren't necessarily in those two spots by Matthew and Luke that describe the details of Christ's birth. Many of them have to do with the implications of what all that means. So while this doesn't include details of the birth account, and it's written by John, who didn't even include any of that in his gospel, uh, you could say that what we just read is a wonderful explanation of what the Christmas story means. And that is that God is with us, that we have grace through Jesus, that we can be saved and have the hope of heaven. Because he came, all of those things are true. But right out of the gate here, in a beautiful and poetic way that reminds us a lot about the first handful of verses in John's gospel, this is the same guy that's writing First John, 2nd and 3rd, that wrote John's gospel. Uh, there's this one thing that he seems to take great pains to make sure we understand. And in a setting like this, I think we all agree that this is obvious, but we shouldn't just pass by it if John took so much trouble to say Christmas really happened. That's what these few verses mean. When Look at it again. Notice the emphasis on the sensory language. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, that's with the ears, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, and all this concerning the word of life. Verse 2, life was made known. We've seen it, testify to it, proclaim it to you, the eternal life which the Father has made manifest. That just means he made it known. Uh, we talked about this weeks ago that that word is often used in uh, medical uh, conversations that such and such uh, symptoms uh, manifest the presence or make known the presence of a certain disease or, or ailment. Well, that's what's going on here. So, I think it would be easy enough to say, well, John's just trying to be pretty in the way he's writing. Uh, we know this about him already. He, he likes a certain amount of drama and pulling our minds back to certain things that he said already. I don't think that this is necessarily put here f to pretty it up. Uh, there are uh, professors and scholars that say that this actually, technically, is actually courtroom language. This would be the way in this culture that someone would, would swear a deposition. If you're put on a witness stand, you're going to be asked questions about where you were, what you saw, how you saw it, uh, what it sounded like, what it smelled like, what it tasted like maybe. That's what makes a, f a first person eyewitness account important, right? So that's what he's doing here. He is saying that he and many other witnesses testify to the fact that Jesus really lived, he really died. 
He really rose from the dead. So then the emphasis moves to the eternal uh, ramifications, implications of what was said in verse 1. John says that this is absolutely true. You can be saved by grace. You can be given life, eternal life, not because you deserve it, but because the word of life wants you to have it. I mean, look at it. The life was made known. We've seen it, testified to it, proclaimed to it, which was with the Father and was made known to us. Let me see if I can put this as clearly and as plainly as I can without making it sound like anyone's trying to insult anyone else's intelligence. The facts that John is testifying to here are what the whole of the gospel is hanging on. This was 2,000 years ago. None of us were there. A historical account. And either it happened or it didn't. And the star witnesses to the validity of whether or not this is true were these apostles. This man named John, another one named Matthew. Uh, Luke is, was, was not one of the disciples, but one who chronicled all that they wrote. And this is either just another work of fiction or its actual historical account. And the difference between those two really single out Christianity among all the other religions as being completely and totally polar opposite different. All the other major religions of the world are basically pointing you toward a way, perhaps, maybe, to attain eternal life. But they're not pointing to eternal life. Jesus was the life. You get Jesus, you get the life. Where the others are, be good. Maybe you'll be weighed in some balances. Uh, Good deeds will outweigh the bad deeds. But you're working yourself toward being in a position worthy of eternal life. And we'll just see how it all shakes out. Now, if that's the case, Christmas is still not a waste. It's a really good story. It's very inspiring. And anyone who's trying to work their way to a heaven, if there's such a thing would do well to follow the example of this humble man of Nazareth who seemed to change the world with his teachings. Everybody knows who Jesus is. Some people go to church because of that name. Others use it as a swear word, but they know who he is. And we've got to make sure your eternal security hangs on it, whether or not these witnesses are, are, are credible. So even a nice legend it still makes a huge difference. Basically, every other religion other than Christianity is selling that we save ourselves through our own efforts. If that's the case, then the Christmas story, though inspiring, would be good, but it really wouldn't make all that difference. Let me try to put it in another way. If it is true, and it really happened, John believes so. I believe so. I believe you believe so. These men claim to be heard from the mouth of the resurrected miracle working Jesus of Nazareth. That would mean that all the other religions are wrong. And that eternal life has nothing to do with what you do, but what has been done. And Christmas was where it started and Easter is where it ended. 
That's completely different ways to look at everything. Salvation is in one person. And as Acts would tell us, because there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Christmas really happened and salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus. So, all of these things you know. You're here in church, aren't you? I'm taking for granted that you know these things. So that's John's opening argument. We were there, we saw it, it happened. And it changes everything. But then when he gets to verse 3, verse 1 and 2 maintain his testimony, his proclamation. But in verse 3, he moves on to tell us the goal of this proclamation. All right, what do you do with such a message? That God came to earth, was laid in a manger, grew up and hung on a tree. He's the one who paid for sins. You trust him by faith, you can go to heaven. Well, verse 3 moves on to tell us the goal. Christmas means you can have fellowship with God. Look at it in verse 3 again. That which we have seen, heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. almost sounds like he's saying, Jesus came and died so that you can be friends with us or join our church. As he starts off that way, but then he says, Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So although it sounds like maybe the long cut instead of a short cut, what he's saying here is that brothers and sisters in Christ are still children of God. So to know John as a brother is to know God as Father. The point he's trying to make is God came to earth and you can know him. You can actually know God. Um, Christmas means you can have fellowship with the creator of the universe. John is saying that believers can have the same personal relationship with God that they, the apostles and others had, who knew him personally when he was alive here on earth. That's, that's saying something. But here's another huge difference in what other religions claim and the one that we have. All other major religions don't think that God can be known on a personal level. Let me just put, there are a lot of Christians who claim to be, maybe they are, but as far as their understanding and knowledge and relationship with, with, with God that's possible through Christmas, it'd be categorized as pathetic. They don't read the Bible. They barely come to church as if that's some way to work your way to heaven. It's not. It just shows that you actually give a hoot about the one who came to earth to pay for your sins. But that's a huge stretch away from others who don't even believe that you can have that at all. I know a fellow, have since I was a child, he's much older than me, um, his faith is Muslim. And we've had conversations here or there about what he believes to be true. He believes there is a God and he believes that God had his prophets. Uh, he believes that Jesus is one and uh, it's kind of impressive he won't mention Jesus or Muhammad without saying, may he be praised out of respect for what he thinks of a prophet of God. But as to knowing this God in a, on a personal level or knowing that this God loved him enough to send his son to earth to die in his place so that he wouldn't have to spend eternity without him, 
He doesn't see it that way. So while I'm sitting there having a conversation with him, my faith rests in the fact that Jesus died in my place. That's what's getting me to heaven. With him, he's still working on being really good and hoping for the best. That's the difference. And John's trying to say, listen, you've you got to believe me. I saw him. I touched him. I heard him. He's real. Changes everything. Decision's yours to believe it or not. No other faith looks at it like this. We spent time Wednesday evening, if you were there, talking about the way God revealed himself in the Old Testament. It started out with Abraham. And in chapter 15 of Genesis, when he'd been asked to split open those uh, animals, lay half their carcass on either side of a little trail. And this is the way people would make agreements. We'd describe it theologically as God cut a covenant with Abraham by putting these animals in a row, and you're both supposed to walk through it, and the idea is if we break this agreement, then that's what should be done to us. But Abram didn't walk through that. He, he was terrified, and this stupor, sleep in the darkness while this flaming torch and burning or smoking furnace passed through alone as if to say, I don't need you on this end of the deal. I can hang it all on myself. So that was the first way God related to another human being. Scared him half to death, a smoking furnace and a, and a torch of sorts. And then when you get to Israel in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, there was the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. You remember these things. How would you feel personally relating to a pillar of fire? Even if it spoke, smoked and spoke, it would be terrifying. Then you got Moses. Most interesting of it all started out with a burning bush, but wound up with being hidden in the cleft of a rock, as it's said, where he had asked to see God's glory. And God said, I'll cover you with my hand. And at a certain point, I'll remove my hand and I'll let you look at my back. If you saw my face, it would be your death. You can't see my face. No one sees my face. When he did go down to the bottom of the mountain, his face, Moses' face was glowing so brightly that it scared everybody. That's what it did to him. Basically, what it's saying is this God is an unapproachable God. Fear and trepidation. Take your shoes off. Fall on your face. People thought they were going to die when they encountered him. It's not that his glory was hidden in the Old Testament. It was there for everybody to see, but in a terrifying type of way. And then we get to the New Testament. And this is John in his gospel. We've been through this about a hundred times. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, was God. Uh, without him, nothing was made that was made. But then in verse 14... And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then to be specific, we have seen his glory. So what you've got, difference between the Old and New Testament, is all that that seemed so distant and scary and holy and awesome has been drawn near in Jesus. In a shape, in a fashion, in a form that we can actually see God and hear God and touch God. Now, what we left with on Wednesday uh, is this idea about what 
What difference this would have made if Moses got to hear it. What, you ever watch those videos, YouTube, some, so-and-so, someone or another reacts to something else, right? Some of the ones I was watching not long ago was, uh, uh, what was it? Some kind of tribal people from the Mideast uh, reacting to American food. And of course, they eat everything with their fingers. So they're like tearing the cheese off the top of the Big Mac and say, what is this? And, and the patty, it's just totally strange to them. Um, Moses reacts to John 1 and 1 John 1. That the God who wouldn't let you see him came to earth himself in human form. Really happened. What difference would that make? Would Moses think that we're off base? No, you don't believe that because if you believe that. Knowing what I know, you enact like you act. Kind of gives a little insight into Wesley's Christmas lyric we sang, was it last week or the week before? I can't remember. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead. See? You actually see God through Jesus. The glories were not hidden in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, they're brought near within reach giving us personal access to the heart of God through His Son, Jesus. And the only place in the Scriptures where the heart of Jesus is explained, it's His words, and He says, gentle and lowly. How many of you think the pillar of fire was gentle and lowly? What about the God who has to hold His hand just for a second so you can see His back or you'll die if you see any more? Gentle and lowly? Absolutely gentle and lowly. But the glory is unbearable in our sinful state. Jesus made sure we saw a glimpse of it. And when he comes back again, it'll be more like the Old Testament. But there'll be a difference then too. All that that messes everything up and blinds us to anything true, known as our sin nature, will be wiped away as well. And we'll see him like we've never seen him before. Now, there's another thing. It's last, and then I'm going to tack one on at the end. But there's been two points so far. Christmas really happened. Also, John is telling us that fellowship with God is possible because of Christmas. He tells us here at the end that telling others results in joy. Look at it, verse 4. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You could say John's understanding of joy was incomplete until others had the same joy and fellowship with God that he had. If I were to ask you, Wake Chapel class, what is the gospel? You should say good news. That's what Christmas is. It's good news. Good news is supposed to be told. I've had a lot of bad news this year. And I've found that bad news travels a lot faster than good news. Wish it was the other way around, but that's just the morbid people that we are. Good news should be told. Luke describes the good news of Christ's birth that the shepherds were told by the angels as glad tidings of great joy. What did the shepherds do? They went and saw. And we've been studying John's gospel, which is basically an invitation to come and see. And here in John 1... First John, 
He's still inviting more people to come and see. Because his joy isn't complete until others see what he's seen. Have you ever experienced something that was, let's just call it, really special? And you couldn't enjoy it completely because you couldn't share it with someone that was close to you. They weren't there. And it's always difficult going back and trying to explain it to them what it looked like or what it felt like. It's not the same. Uh, I've been to Israel twice. And the first trip and the second trip were very different. The second trip, we got to see more of the things that we've come to know so well in in our Bibles that are, are really over there. They look different, some of them. But on this second trip... Uh, one afternoon where we had a little bit of time right before we were supposed to all go eat dinner, um, we were staying on the Sea of Galilee, and it was a nice hotel with a big overhanging deck. It was brick, though, right over the water. And it was facing the part of the Sea of Galilee where it's not as developed as much. So you actually see some shoreline rather than just building after building. And it was absolutely and totally mesmerizing. Not that I've never seen water before or hills, but just the significance of knowing right out there is where Jesus walked on the water. Right over there was where he fed 5,000. Somewhere in here, he told those guys to throw the net on the other side. And I'm just kind of drinking all this in. And uh, the guide, who's a professor and a pastor from Tennessee, came over and said, what's wrong? And I said, I want my wife to see this. I'm never going to be able to explain it. And then he paid me this big compliment. He said, son, this is called love. When you can't enjoy something, you can't share with someone so special to you. Now suppose you had actually touched God. I've just heard stories about him. It's obvious you can tell this this old man at this point, John, can't enjoy what he's experienced unless he's told someone else to tell you To tell anyone that will listen. He's still telling the same story. If you knew John, it's probably, that's just John. He's still inviting people to Jesus. It's all he ever talks about and all he ever does. It was because it changed his life forever. Telling others results in joy. His joy is incomplete until he's done it. And here's this last thing I want to leave with you. And this is uh, taken again from... uh, Tim Keller's work. I've mentioned him a number of times this month. Uh, But he argues that we often fail to experience this Christian joy that John is talking about because the means to achieving it are so ordinary, much like the story itself. The Christmas story, as is, is not an extraordinary story in the human terms of it. That birth took place like all the other births 
That name given was like so many other Hebrew names. There were things that happened accompanying this that made it extraordinary. But on a human level, it was just plain old plain. And the verse that I think is is most mysterious of the whole thing here is actually verse 1. And it contains the mystery the likes of which we as humans are just flat out programmed to read right over and miss it all. And we could unless we just make sure that our imagination is intact and we're asking the Lord to open our eyes to what's being said. But John says, and we've already read it, our hands have touched. Touched what? That which was from the beginning. Now that's extraordinary. Now I'm going to try to do this without confusing anyone. But just think your way through the, the way humans respond to stuff that that's supposed to be important or great, right? And what lengths we'll go to get our hands on something that's, that's truly fantastic. Um, I remember as a kid, my dad had a piece of the, the Berlin Wall. You remember the, the Berlin Wall? I, as a kid, I remember it coming down, people wailing on it with sledgehammers and lights out in the night, and everybody's having a ball, a blast. I didn't understand all that stuff, but I remember it. And Dad ordered a piece. And back then, I'm sure you had to call a 1-800 number to get it. There wasn't an internet. You couldn't just order it up. And by the way, if you want a piece, Amazon's got them. Complete with the spray paint on one side of it. And the skeptic in me believes that for twenty four ninety five, you too can have a fake piece. <laughs> Maybe it's real. I don't know. But I just remember holding that and thinking... Wow, this is a piece of that wall that they were tearing apart on the TV, on the news, over in Europe. It has to do with World War II and Checkpoint Charlie and all that. I thought, this is pretty cool. But for $25, you can hold a piece of historical greatness. I did some more digging around last night. How many of you would say actually holding a piece of the moon would, would trump that? You know, the, the astronauts brought back some, but they have people that can say with certainty, they're certain, that there are pieces of the moon that popped off the moon when stuff hit it long ago. And given the right uh, aligning of the planets, it'll get close enough to the Earth's gravity to fall down and you can find a piece of the moon in the desert. The last piece of the moon that was bigger than the ones the astronauts brought back sold for about two and a half million dollars. But how many of you would, would stand in line to touch it? I would. I'd take my sanitizer with me. <laughs> but I'd touch it. But then I found out that uh, people's interests are different. What some people might think is greatness, others would not. I'd want the piece of the moon. But I found out that Babe Ruth's 1920 jersey sold for almost twice that amount. Four and a half million dollars. That'd still be pretty cool to touch Babe Ruth's 1920 jersey. But that's the way we do, right? The bigger the, 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 the spectacle, the greater the thing that's happening. Who would describe 
the Christmas story from Luke 2 as being spectacle. It was anything but. And where the Christian life begins is in the simple ask of save me. If, 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 if God were to come to the planet and we were uh, tasked with, the, with the, the whole idea of receiving the God of the universe, He's coming on such and such a date, what kind of proportion would we blow it into? And what would your prospects be of standing in line to actually meet Him? You know, it's bad enough to want to see the, the Pope. That's not how any of this works. What happened at Christmas and what enabled John to say what John said? For what John said to be true, that he touched with his hand that which was from the beginning, requires that the infinite becomes finite. Uh, You can think about finite, but it's almost impossible to think about infinite because your head hurts. You can't think that big. Finite can be measured. Infinite cannot. Uh, Extraordinary became ordinary. At Christmas, unimaginable greatness was laid in a manger. And what's so intriguing about it is how the world actually loves this Christian holiday. Though the world refuses to believe what it actually means. Because it means they have to answer the infinite by something that's ordinary. It's where a lot of people trip over it. You mean God of the universe is just going to send his son to die a horrible death because he loves me so much. He's going to wipe away all the ugly things I've ever done. You don't know what I've done, but you're saying that it's all just gone. Yeah. That's the Christmas story. How would we expect God to reveal himself? How close would we get? Let me read directly from Keller. And I thought this was brilliantly simple. The Christian life begins not with high deeds and achievements, but with the most simple and ordinary act of asking. Then the life and joy grow in us over the years through commonplace, almost boring practices. Daily obedience, reading prayer, reading scripture, praying prayers, worship attendance, serving our brothers and sisters in Christ as well as our neighbors, depending on Jesus during times of suffering. Those are the means to the joy that this book's telling us all about. You want to touch that which was from the beginning? It's prayer. Acts of kindness. Simple stuff. It's not pieces of the moon or Berlin Wall or the great Bambino's jersey. That's not it. It's not where it's found. That's stuff we want to do, but that's not what John is on about. Don't be put off by the ordinariness of the means of joy, for in that ordinariness is the hidden, extraordinary riches of the gospel. So this last point is through ordinary means. Christmas really happened. It makes fellowship with God possible. There's joy in telling people about it. 
but it's still just ordinary stuff. And that's why my prayer for 2021 is, is faithfulness. That was my prayer for last year. And it'll be my prayer for the year after this coming year. Because what we want to hear from our Lord is, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Keep praying. Keep reading. Keep learning. Keep loving. Keep attending. Keep doing what Jesus did that the world doesn't consider to be of much value until he comes back for us that's what we do ordinary stuff and an extraordinary story known at the beginning to begin with those words John used it twice in the beginning and then in the end toward the end of the book of the revelation there is this Description of seeing his face. That's what I'm looking forward to. With your actual eyeballs. Going to join John together. And having heard, seen, and touched that which was from the beginning. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, sometimes our, our energy is spent... Perhaps our emotions a little worn out or perhaps even thin this time of year. It's been busy and this one's been so strange. And Lord, some of the things that are most precious to us, we haven't been able to share with those that are so close to us. For some, that's an impossibility this year. They've said goodbye to loved ones. But Lord, I ask that you'll Bottle up what we've learned and studied about Christmas. And not just the nostalgia of it and the way it sounds and smells, feels during this time of year. But the implications of it. That because it happened, we have grace through Jesus. Telling others will give us unimaginable joy. Not in some fantastic way but in the simple joy of being faithful so I ask that you bless Wake Chapel in its faithfulness Lord that even though the world around us might change completely maybe even 180 degrees Lord would you so grant us that nothing would change about this church about your gospel about our telling other people about that gospel Lord, give us faithfulness. Stand us up tall. Lord, hold us tight. But then again, spread us out to the folks that don't know yet. And Lord, we'll be a church most blessed. Lord, thank you for these words today from your word. Thank you for the words of the song we'll sing. And thank you for the remainder of a year almost over, and a new one to come. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.